Good morning. It was a great pleasure to be with you here. Although I cannot believe your pastor just did that to me. That is my favorite. Hit the button. Is it green? It's red. There you go. Now we're good? All right. That's my favorite hymn. I've never been able to sing all the way through. I choke up every time. So it's a perfect thing to sing before getting in the pulpit. (laughs) If you turn with me this morning to about the middle of your Bibles to the 119th Psalm, we're going to be looking at one stanza of that psalm this morning. Uh, The stanza is from verses 153 to 160. Psalm 119, verses 153 to 160. Let's read this together. Consider my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great are your tender mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your judgments. Many are my persecutors and my enemies, yet I do not turn from your testimonies. I see the treacherous and am disgusted because they do not keep your word. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord according to your loving kindness. The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Let's once again go to the Lord in prayer. O merciful and gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the precious word that you have given us. But Lord, we stand in need of the work of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would open your word by your spirit to our hearts this day, that you would comfort those in need of comfort, that you would strengthen those in need of strength, that you would draw us all closer to yourself, and that you would draw any here who do not know our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ into a saving relationship with him this very day. Be with us, we pray. Without your spirit, we can accomplish nothing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I think all of us recognize, if we know anything accurate about the history of the world and the history of Christianity, that we are incredibly blessed to live in the nation that we live in. That the freedom to preach the gospel and worship openly has been a great blessing that God's common grace has given us here in this land. But anyone 
with any access to any form of media today is seeing what is apparently God just pulling away his hand of restraining grace from this land where there are riots in the streets, the information sources for most people in this country are full of more lies than truth and those in charge are trying to sow discord. Churches are being told not to worship together while rioters are left completely unpunished. God is clearly withholding his restraining hand in a way he has not done in this country, at least in a long time. And with that restraining, that restraining hand being lifted away, it seems clear to me that it's very likely that we in this country who worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will soon be suffering much greater persecution than we have in the past. So that brings me to our text today. Psalm 119 is my favorite chapter in the Bible because what it's 170, 176 verses. If my memory serves me correctly, all but two of them specifically say something about the Word of God. And they are all prayers to God. This is a book of prayer. This is a psalm of prayers to God concerning His Word. And so... I highly recommend the practice of pray through a stanza. Before you come to your devotions, when you're about to get in your, into the Word of God, pray through a stanza of this. Sometimes it's hard. There's some, tough, there's some tough things to pray in here, but we ought to pray them. But that being said, I believe this stanza, verses 153 through 160, is particularly uh, fitted for the situation that I feel that most many of us will be in in coming days, or we at least need to be prepared for. So I want to look at this under five headings, and the first is your affliction. Verse 153, consider my affliction and deliver me. Verse 157, many are my persecutors and my enemies. Verse 158, I see the treacherous and am disgusted. The treacherous are all around us. They are persecuting us. They are our enemies and they afflict us. I want you to first notice that affliction and persecution is the lot of every Christian. Now, it has been very mild for Christians in America for a long time. Compared, There are literally people being martyred in other countries for their faith. Then we have no fear of that here. But that does not mean that we're free from persecution. 
2 Timothy 3.12, yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's a promise. All who seek to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Some forms are milder than others. No one's threatening to behead us right now. But we have loved ones that do not know Christ who may be tearing our hearts out. We may have fellow employees who speak very ill of us. We all suffer persecution in one way or another, and this should help us focus our hearts in the right manner when that comes. But not only is it the lot of every Christian, I want you to notice more importantly that when you are being persecuted, you are partaking in the sufferings of Christ. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 16. Peter says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when he, his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a busybody in other people's matters. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him give glory to God in this matter. Now, when I say we are partaking in the sufferings of Christ, do not, we're not talking about the suffering of his atonement. He don't partake it. He right. finished that on his own. Yes. He shed his blood. We can have none of that has anything to do with us other than it's what cleanses us. I think the key passage to help us understand what it means when we partake of Christ's sufferings is Acts 9, verse 4. Remember, when Christ stops Saul on his way to persecute the church, he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. But it doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church? It doesn't even say, why are you persecuting my people? The Lord Jesus Christ says, why are you persecuting me? We are the body of Christ. He suffers in us. When we are suffering persecution, this is part of our union with Jesus Christ. But third, I want you to notice that afflictions and persecutions are blessings. Yes. Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. And how should we respond? Rejoice. And be exceedingly glad, 
For great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Yes, affliction and persecution hurts. It hurts so deeply. But it is, at the same time, a blessing. We see also that affliction and persecution have multiple purposes. For one thing, they remind us of our weakness, our complete inability to care and protect ourselves. We cannot survive a moment apart from the strength of Jesus Christ, and this reminds us of that. It should serve to drive us to our knees. When life is at ease, it's far too easy to forget that we need to be before the throne of grace at all times. And it's to drive us to Christ. As Spurgeon said, to paraphrase, blessed be that wave that crashes me upon the rock of Jesus Christ. But it also serves to expose false converts. Matthew 13, when Christ is explaining the parable of the sower, he says, but he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For in tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. The purity of Christ's church is important to him, and persecution is clearly a tool he uses to purify his church. But also, I want you to notice that we conquer through persecutions. We as Christians need to live by faith and not by sight. Martyrdom, the worst of persecutions, right? Worst persecution, get tortured and killed. That looks like the enemy conquering the Christian, doesn't it? That's what the eyes of the world see. That's what the eyes of the flesh see. But is that what's going on? Someone cuts off your head for the faith. They send you straight to your Savior where you you receive a crown of glory. The crown goes to the victor, not to the loser. We need to live by faith and not by sight. We see this in church history. The times of greatest revival are also the times of greatest persecution. You think of the time of the Reformation, the greatest revival the world has seen, and it's a time when mothers were being burned at the stake or drowned for teaching their children the Ten Commandments and and, uh, the Lord's Prayer in English. You see, 
think about the cross of Jesus Christ. Without the eyes of faith, what do we see? A man conquered by evils of this world. Evil men are killing an undeserving man. It looks like failure, but it was the greatest victory the world has ever known. God can, that's, it wasn't a one-time thing. God continues to work that same way. When he promised, when he first promised the Messiah and said, he will bruise your heel, but he will crush your head. There is the, what did we see? All we saw was the bruising of the heel. But what was the great thing happening was crushing the head. But God continues that way. Romans 16, 20. Yes. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Yes. God continues to work triumph through the suffering of his people. We need to live by faith and not by sight. Amen. I need to know how long I have. Okay. Um, I just, before I move on, I just want to go off maybe a tiny rabbit trail. And, but really draw your attention to this truth regarding your eschatology. Because there is a form of eschatology that has become very popular in the last few years. It dismays me, but it has. But the idea that for a thousand, at least figurative years, before Christ returns, every nation in the world is going to be Christianized. Governments will all be run according to Christian principles. And the vast majority of people in the world will be truly converted, and those who aren't will be living as though they were because of the society that they're in. All who seek to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Yes. Yes. In this scenario, who's persecuting? If it's the Christians are persecuting each other, this doesn't really sound like a millennium I want to be in. Okay? We need, we, need to, we need to use the same hermeneutic for eschatology that we do for everything else. That is, the difficult passages of Scripture are always interpreted in light of the less difficult, not the other way around. When you can, and, and yes, there are some apocalyptic forms of literature that if you take these verses, they look like that's what it's saying. But you try to stick these clear things. And Jesus Christ, narrow is the path that leads to life. There are few who find it. Broad is the path that leads to destruction. And there are many that go in there by. And we're so believe there's going to be some day when Christians look back 
on all who seek to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And narrow is the way and say, boy, I'm glad we're not living under that anymore. We, we, we need to let clear, clear things in the Bible take precedence over the unclear. Okay, rabbit trail finished. That's our look at our afflictions. But let's look secondly at your afflictors. We need to recognize that afflictions come primarily from people. There, there are situations that afflict us, but primarily and most painful afflictions that we bear are from other people. Salvation, verse 155, salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not keep your statutes. One, verse 157, many are my persecutors and my enemies. And verse 158, I see the treacherous and am disgusted because they do not keep your word. So first I want to look at the description of your afflictors. They are those who do not seek God's statutes. They are those who do not keep God's word. They are those who persecute God's people. See also, they are our enemies. But I don't want you to look at these descriptions and think, okay, this is just talking about someone who just hates Christians and is out to kill them. Uh, these can be members of your own family. They can be people you love more than you could ever comprehend. And yet, they're, en they're enemies, and they can hurt you more than anyone else can. Matthew 10, verses 34 to 36. Christ says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. I'm going to fight going down the rabbit trail of making the Peta Baptist explain how in the world that fits with household baptisms. But we just need to recognize that the afflictions that we bear from others are often from those we love the most. Also, look, the number of our afflictors. Verse 157, many are my persecutors and my enemies. But I want to look thirdly at their origin. Where do these persecutors and enemies come from? Well, we can see this clear back in Genesis 3.15, where God tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God puts enemy between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Everyone who trusts in Christ, the seed of the woman, is 
in union with him and is therefore the seed of the woman. And therefore, there is an enmity placed by God between those who are the ser ser seed of Satan and those who no longer are. That continues throughout history. We see it in John 8 when Christ is speaking to unbelievers. You are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. What did we see? God saved Abel and immediately his brother killed him. This is nothing new. It is something that continues. We see it throughout scripture and other places. It, when, when John the Baptist and Jesus Christ both refer to the Pharisees as a brood of vipers, they weren't just pulling that out of thin air. He was pointing they are still the seed of the serpent. They're of their father, the devil. And like John 1, 3, 8, he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose of the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So that's their origin. But let's look at their destiny. Verse 155, salvation is far from the wicked. When the Christian is being persecuted by the world, especially in places where they're literally being martyred on a daily basis, it looks like the wicked are quite safe and Christ's people are in great danger. But again, we live by faith, not by sight. The truth is, Salvation and safety is far from the wicked. They are in far greater danger than they could ever be aware. They're being held by a thread over the pits of hell and don't even realize it. Whereas Christ's people are safely in the hand of the Father where no one could ever snatch them out. But I also want to recognize our attitude toward them. Our attitude toward the ungodly who persecute us. Verse 158. I see the treacherous or unfaithful and am disgusted because they do not keep your word. Now notice, notice the reason for the disgust. The reason for this attitude toward the ungodly, it's not because they're hurting me. Mm -hmm. It's because they are not obeying God. But we also need to recognize from this that we cannot be complacent about the abounding bounding sin around us. That can happen. I mean, it just, 
more and more sin that you're seeing and you're seeing, you can't get away from it. It's, yeah. and, and you can just become numb to it. That is not what we as Christians should do. Remember in Ezekiel 9.4, the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over the abominations that are done within it. This is the mark of God's true people. They are those who sigh and cry, those who are disgusted by these things. We cannot let familiarity make us numb. Remember the psalmist also says, rivers of water run down my face because men do not keep your law. But this is not the extent of our attitude toward the ungodly, even toward those who are persecuting us. Yes, there, there does need to be a righteous indignation, a righteous disgust by the wickedness that this culture is surrounding us with. But it must also be mixed with a great measure of compassion. Look at verse 155. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. So it's the next thing he says. Great are your tender mercies, O Lord. We, in and of ourselves, are no better than the worst offenders that we see. If you really think that if God didn't restrain his grace from you, you would go headlong into the worst of sins, you need to pray that God would give you a glimpse of what truly lies at the bottom of your heart. Because it is only dependence upon him that can keep us from going into the worst of these sins. They all lie within our hearts. We deserve damnation in and of ourselves just as much as the worst persecutors of Christ's people that ever were. And that ought to first fill us with compassion for them. Yes, we are disgusted to see the wickedness that is around us. But oh, how we need to love the souls of those who are heading to damnation, the same damnation we deserve. Now we ought to be reaching out to them in any way we can, caring for them, loving them. When they're driving stakes into our hearts, figuratively speaking, we need to be bringing them before the throne of grace. But thirdly, I want to look at your path. Your path. Verse 153, consider my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. 157, many are my persecutors and my enemies, yet I do not turn from your testimonies. Verse 159, consider how I love your precepts. And verse 158, I see the treacherous and disgusted because they do not keep your word. I want to first point out that what we're looking here at here is imparted righteousness yes. 
rather than implanted righteousness. Calvin says here, the prophet does not boast in his endeavors to keep the law as if he would have God pay him wages for his service, but only to show that he is one of God's servants. Gill, on the same passage, says this, the psalmist mentions, talking about, consider my affliction, deliver me, for I do not forget your law. This, the psalmist mentions, not as if his not forgetting the law or doctrine of God was meritorious of deliverance from affliction, but as a descriptive character of such who the Lord does deliver. We have clear statements like Proverbs 11.8. The righteous is delivered from trouble and it comes to the wicked instead. So when the psalmist says, consider my affliction and delivery, for I do not forget your law. He's not saying, look how righteous I am. You need to deliver me from this persecution. That is far, far far from what is in the psalmist's heart and should be far, far, far from anything that enters our minds. That doesn't mean, however, that he's pleading the imputed righteousness of, of Christ at this point. There actually is a difference in character yes. between Christ's people yes. and the world. There really is. Hebrews 8.10 For this is the covenant that I will make with them. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. That is the promise. If you have trusted in Christ, God has written his law on your heart. That means that you went from the stony heart that hated his law And now you have a heart of flesh that loves it because you see God's character in it. You long to obey it. You seek to obey it because you want to please your God. Do you obey it perfectly for a millisecond? No. But you love it. You want to obey it. You're grieved when you find yourself constantly disobeying it. Ephesians 2.10, this is why I call this your path. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The psalmist is pleading his love for God's law, his non-forgetting of God's law, as a demonstration that he is truly God's child. And God would care for him as a loving father. Consider how I love your law, he says. Not how I keep it perfectly, but how I love it. It is a transcript of the perfect character of the God we love. 
The Christian does not see the law as shackles, nor does the Christian see the law as a stairway to heaven, but he sees the law as guideposts along the way to eternal life. He does not enter eternal life by following those guideposts. He enters eternal life by trusting in the only one with perfect righteousness to save him. But the path he follows the rest of the way to heaven mm-hmm. is a path of obedience mm-hmm. and love for God's law. But I, should, I, I can't go past this without mentioning just a little bit about imputed righteousness. There, there is a current trend in Reformed preaching today that seems to only want to see imputed righteousness in every text. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's wonderful to see a re-awakening uh, of, of seeing Christ in all of Scripture. Every passage in this word, Old Testament is new, is about Christ. But that doesn't mean that every instance of righteousness is only talking about Christ's imputed righteousness to those who believe. I I think it's a very dangerous trend. And men I love seem to be going down that road a little bit. I pray the Lord will hold them back. I mean, just stop and think. When Christ tells us about the last day, when he separates the sheep from the goats, how does he separate the sheep from the goats? What's the difference? It's the things they did and who they loved. There is a visible difference between sheep and goats. Yeah, and, and here's, here's, let me, let me just, I, I'm playing on this, but let, here's why this is so important. This is the kind of truth that God used to shake me from being a false professor for 19 years. For 19 years, I thought I was a Christian. I had never repented of my sins. I just asked Jesus into my heart probably 2,000 times over those 19 years and trusted that I was a Christian. And it wasn't until someone, I read in a book, someone said, all Christians bear some fruit all the time. That was... That was the first thing that shook me. Yeah. This, these are important truths. Yes. Yeah. Yet, they're not more important than salvation is only through the impart, imputed righteousness of Christ that we receive by faith alone, but they are just as important. Okay. Yeah. Now let me move fourthly to your petitions. Your petitions. Because this... What, what are we to do when we are suffering persecution and affliction? Cry out to God. These are our petitions by which we cry out to God. Consider my affliction and deliver me. Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. Revive me according to your judgments. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. We see, first of all, he cries out, consider my affliction. Ask God, turn, 
Turn your compassionate eyes toward your suffering servant. Lord, it hurts. Help me. He says, deliver me. Consider my affliction and deliver me. Now, we've seen that God has promised that we will suffer affliction and persecution. But that's not all he's promised. He's not simply promised that we will suffer. But he has promised that he will deliver. Psalm 34, 17, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Psalm 97, 10, you who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the souls of his saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. So when you find yourself in persecution, you don't just turn stoic, saying, I guess this is where God wants me to go through right now. Ho-hum, your sigh. No. When he puts, brings you these kind of trials, his primary thing he wants you to do is cry out to him for deliverance. He delights to answer all of our prayers. I believe he especially delights to answer these kind of prayers. He also says, plead my cause and redeem me. Defend my cause. Plead my plea, it literally says. When we are being persecuted for righteousness sake, we have an advocate. I mean, recognize from 1 John, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who, when we sin, goes before his Father on our behalf to plead his own sinlessness on our behalf. How much more will he plead our cause when we are suffering for his sake. We have an advocate who will plead our plea and deliver us from persecution. But we come to I think the main plea of this passage repeated three times. Revive me. Your, your, your uh, translation may say give me life. I actually like give me life better. Because revive seems like, oh, you might be, you're just falling asleep. Somebody's shaking you up, waking you up, giving you a shot of Red Bull. No. No. When, when Christ's people are suffering to the point that their souls are the grave's edge, when we're wallowing in the mire of this world, it is death that we feel upon us. And what we need is life. Not just wake up. Not just revive me, give me more energy. It's I need life. I feel like death. I need life. Gill says here, reminds us, 
This is a prayer not for the first work of quickening grace. He's not praying as though God give me life because I'm, I'm, I'm not a Christian. I need you to save me. He's not praying for the first work of quickening grace or the first implantation of a principle of spiritual life, which the psalmist had had an experience of, but for the reviving of the work and principle in him, that he might be refreshed and comforted, be animated and stirred up to a lively exercise of grace and performance of duty, finding himself in dead and lifeless frames and not able to quicken himself. As if there's anything we're unable to do, it's quicken ourselves, isn't yes. it? Yes. We cannot give ourselves life. But I want to say a couple things about this life that we're asking for. This is one of those, those times where I think it's important to um, understand when, what Augustine said. When he said... Um, speaking of the relationship between the Old and New Testaments. He said the old, I think I just wrote this backwards. The new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. I did write it backwards, I actually remembered it. Um, the psalmist was trusting in the Redeemer for his salvation, just like we are. Salvation was not by another means. He was trusting the Redeemer to come. We were trusting in redemption past. But what we have, he, he, he had a Bible that was types and shadows. We have the clear manifest revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is one of, so we can, we can pray the same prayers as the psalmist, but with a much clearer picture of what we're asking for in our heads. And so when we are praying to God in times of persecution, give me life, we can have a clearer picture of what we're asking for. When you come to the God, come to God your Father, pleading with Him for life, I want you to remember things like John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or 1 Corinthians 15, 45. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And John 17, 3, for this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. When we are crying out to God to give us life, we are crying out to God to give us Christ. More Christ. More love for Christ. More experience of the compassion of Christ. More communion with Christ. In all of our troubles, all we need is Christ. When we're crying out for life, we're crying out for more Christ. Of course, there's one sense you can't have any more Christ. You've got all of Christ. You're in union with him. But there also you can experience yes. Yes. 
communion with him in greater measures. And that is what you need in times of persecution to experience communion with Jesus Christ. But he cries out for life in three ways. First, he cries out for life according to your word. Verse 154, revive me according to your word. We all ought to realize that our spiritual life begins with the word of God. No one ever comes from spiritual death, spiritual life, apart from the gospel through the word of God. Yes. First Peter 1.23, we have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God. Spiritual life begins through the word of God. But it not only begins with the word of God, it is nourished and preserved by the word of God as well. During times of affliction and persecution, when we're crying out to God for life, we ought to be spending all the time we can searching his scriptures, trusting in the promises, following the precepts, living for the doctrines, trusting in the prophecies and the promises. When we cry out to life from God, it is life according to his word. It's all, not also only according to his word, is also in accordance with his judgments. I spent about two days just mulling over this passage this week and talking to uh, some people about it. Great are your tender mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your judgments. Your judgments. That's when God judges something's, someone's guilty. Or innocent. And I was, I was not helped by Calvin or Gill. They both said I take it to mean promises. When you go to lexicon, the word doesn't mean promises anywhere. Um, after struggling with it, I, I, suddenly it was like, duh. It's not on the basis of your judgments, but in accordance with them. God's tender mercies have never been at odds with his righteousness and justice. Never. God has always been perfectly just. He has never forgiven anyone by ceasing to be just. You realize that the God of every false religion is an unjust God. There's not a one that doesn't unjustly pardon people for one reason or another. And some of them are the silliest reasons you could possibly imagine. God is perfectly just. There is no separation his, his mercy does not triumph over his justice. Mm. It is at the cross of Christ mm. that mercy and justice kiss. Yes. Amen. 
God can be perfectly just and yet still be full of tender mercies because of what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did for us. Every one of our sins was punished on that cross and put away forever. None of us could have ever paid our own penalty had we spent eternity suffering, but he paid for every debt. So does life, according to your word and according to your judgments, but also according to your loving kindness or faithful love or steadfast love. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. This is the covenant love of God found only in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to his dear children. Finally, I want to look at your hope. Verse 156, great are your tender mercies, O Lord. The tender mercies we find in Jesus Christ are the one and only foundation for our hope to survive the next five minutes or continue in God's word when we're facing persecution. It's our only hope. Our only hope is in he who laid down his life on our behalf who suffered the unimaginable wrath of God that we deserved so that we might live. It is his tender mercies upon which we rely. But also, we need to remember verse 160. The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. All this life comes through one form of his word or not, through your word, through your judgments, through the love and kindness that is only revealed to us in his word. All that is necessary for life and salvation in Christ Jesus is found only in his word. Nowhere else. It's not written in the stars. It's not something common to all religions that we just happen to have a bit of. Salvation is only found in the word of God. It is all that is necessary. And you cannot trust in Christ and not trust in his word. For it is his word and everything in it is about him. This is one of the other things that struck me. I I guess this is a realization I came to after my true conversion. Because I was like, I was trusting in in Jesus for 19 years, but I wasn't saved. How was that? Well, I wasn't trusting in the Jesus revealed this word. Jesus, the the thing stuck to me the most. This Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. My Jesus didn't know anything about repentance. That's why he couldn't save me. He was a figment of my imagination. You have to believe every word of this book. Because it's Christ's word. And it's all about him. And if you can't believe his word, you're not really trusting in him. 
you've probably created your own little Christ that looks a lot like you, but is incapable of saving you. But finally, for any of you here today who have not trusted in Jesus Christ as your only means of salvation, you may not think of yourself as the wicked, but the wicked are those who do not seek God's statutes. If you are not, if you do not love the Word of God and long to serve Him, you deserve His wrath. But one has come to offer you life. And He says, Come to me. Don't put it off. Recognize the wickedness of your own heart and flee to Christ. It's no matter how filthy you are, you are not beyond the cleansing he offers. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. O merciful and gracious Heavenly Father, we bless you and thank you for your word and your spirit and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. May you uphold and strengthen us through all the afflictions of this life. And may you make this prayer of the psalmist our prayers when it is a time of need. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.